0: Good morning. <clears throat> that wasn't very enthusiastic, folks. <laughs> Come on. Uh, this message, actually, I have to blame uh, Steve Eichenbaum for my revision to the title, Transition Trading Places. Actually, Steve is the guy who suggested that on this day, that Jeanette and I sit back there <laughs> and that Tom and Debbie sit down here. Trading places. I've had several people ask, and I know many of you are thinking, "What in the world is he going to say? What is this message going to be about?" So, have you got my slide there? Next one. Yes. This is over forty years ago. I don't know if any of you remember when Haddon Robinson did the, the best Christmas pageant ever. Maybe forty-five years ago, but but one of the, I, that's the first time I had heard that story by Barbara Robinson, and and uh, you remember that there's the the horrible herdman family that are all delinquents. They burn down somebody's uh, outhouse and and a few other uh, bad things, and these hoodlums decided to come to Sunday school because they heard that they were snacks, and in the process of all of that, they took over, as it were, the Christmas pageant, and Charlie, the fellow who's telling the story, it's Charlie's mother who has the misfortune of being the director of the pageant. And so, there are all kinds of things that happen in that, but here's the line I was thinking about. When uh, Charlie's mother is preparing to go to the pageant, her husband says to her, what should we expect? The answer, does anybody remember? Something different. (laughs) So I thought that would be the answer to your uh, question that all of you are asking in your minds, what should we expect? I want to say a few things just sort of to bring us up to date in in terms of history. So I'm going to walk you through a a bunch of slides As we do that, so you can, Kevin, you can roll on past that and I'll I'll basically tell the story. Now, this picture is for Bob Murdoch. Where's Bob? Anyway, it is Gig Harbor. This is almost the exact scene from a service station where I worked in the summers looking out of Gig Harbor, Mount Rainier. And just to the right, out of your sight, is the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. That's where I taught school. That's where we left in the summer, June of 1967, during the Six-Day War, wondering whether it was even worth driving to Dallas because it looked like the Lord was was on his way. When we uh, arrived in Dallas, we, we knew virtually no one. We had left family. We had left friends. And providentially, Jeanette and I drove down to the seminary just to see what it looked like and the library was closed. And a fellow there named Chuck Haley had come to do some work on his thesis, and he was surprised to discover it was closed as well. And and so we met at the library door, and he said, well, why don't you come home and meet my family and have dinner with us? And why don't you go to church with us tomorrow morning? And that was how we came providentially to Believer's Chapel, as you know that, uh, by the way, I, I had to grovel for this next picture, not that one, <laughs> that one, that's Ron Adair, Don's brother did that of, of Dr. Johnson and uh, anyway it was there not only of course at seminary as a professor but there. That uh, that we came under the ministry of of Doctor Johnson and others. Go to the next uh, slide, and I want you to just notice. This is the S. Lewis Johnson uh, Institute that's on the web, but notice that last bottom line. Through the years, I have listened to the preaching of S. Lewis Johnson far more than any other preacher, Doctor John MacArthur. So it isn't just uh, us who appreciate his ministry many others now go to the next slide that I confess that's when Bill and Marilyn and Jeanette and I went to Alaska so you can all look and 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 uh, wish you were there but it was a great afternoon and uh, as you know Bill was was like an older brother to to me and to us and had a significant impact on uh, on our lives as he did for you uh, go to the next couple of shots. This is Howard and Ann Pryor with Bill and Marilyn. This was a year ago that we had a lunch at our house and brought the old, uh, uh, how would I say it, former, that's not the right word, former elders of of uh, Believer's Chapel together. And so this was Howard and Ann. Go to the next one now and you'll see uh, uh, Harold Mims and Charlie Howard and Gardner Michael and and all their wives what a great time that was to reminisce over those days at Believer's Chapel and to think about the ministry which the chapel had uh, in our lives, in all of our lives. Now, in the course of, of coming to uh, uh, our inception as, as a uh, church, we started meeting in 1976, in December of 1976, uh, with the encouragement and support of the elders at Believer's Chapel. And uh, over the course of time, a number of ministries sort of uh, overflowed out of that. And, and one of those is uh, Bible.org. Uh, and it was one of our elders in particular, Hugh Blevins, who basically said, we need to capture this and keep it. I don't know why. I don't know what for. That was before the Internet existed. And uh, and. There it is. Okay, go to the next slide. That's just uh, uh, one shot of, of some of the stuff I've done, and then go ahead and roll on to the next one. I'm saying that as a commercial. Where's old Dave? <coughs> yeah, all right. Dave's uh, the uh, executive director, and he'll love uh, getting a little commercial for all of you to go and <coughs> look at those uh, sermons. Now, go to the next uh, slide. Also, it was early on that I met Alex Strouk, uh, who has written the book Biblical Eldership and Biblical Deaconing and so on, through his brother-in-law, who was with us at Believer's Chapel. And so I became associated with these guys as well in the Biblical Eldership Resources group. And then notice the next one, uh, Brenda Smith. Uh, you remember Brenda and Rick were with us in our earliest days. Brenda is uh, Fred's daughter, and uh, the Breakfast with Fred Leadership Institute goes into Christian colleges and talks about Christian business principles, and those are uh, some of the interests that I have had. I didn't have a slide for Black Evangelistic Enterprise, although I was involved with them for about 25 years, Prison Fellowship and Indian Evangelical Mission that I I still support and am involved with. Now, go to the next slide. This is one I really want you to see and to appreciate. For for 35 years, we have had this, what do you call it, a, a Friday sermon seminar, whatever you want to call it, but we've met for 35 years. And this is the most recent group uh, and, and you can see, by the way, John Marr isn't there. I don't know how he missed that day, but John's picture ought to be there. I just, I just didn't uh, have it. Now I go to the next shot and you'll see, uh, Carrie Dula was taking the picture before and Carrie's in that and Sharon was, was with us. I cannot tell you how much these people have contributed to my ministry in terms of teaching, and how many times they have kept you from some horrible error <laughs> that I was about to make, uh, and and trust me, uh, that that is really true. It is it is a wonderful thing to have a sounding board like uh, this group. Okay, let's get this out of the way, just so uh, we can move on to more important things. What will I do after this? That's that's what people. Uh, want to know I was I was with a fellow preacher this past week and Tom was there as well and he said well what are you going to do and and it was like his mental list of options was get on a cruise ship and just go away (laughs) you know for a long time now some people may think that's a wonderful thought I said I'll tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to sit in the front and I'm going to say amen that's what I'm going to do I'm going to stay in my seat not that back one in the front and uh Say amen to what Tom says. I'm going to continue to serve as an elder. I'm going to engage in ministry at CBC as needed. And I anticipate uh, enhanced ministry, uh, especially with Bible.org, the biblical eldership uh, resource team and with the uh, Breakfast with Fred group as well. Okay, now here comes the question. People have asked, how do you feel about this transition? How, you know, how, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I, you know, I, I didn't even know uh, altogether. But I can tell you how I should feel, and I believe it is the way I actually do feel. So I want to I just go through the transitions that I've seen in the Bible and, and get some high points and sort of leave this with you as, as sort of parting thoughts. One, New Testament principles for the church were meant to make transitions easy. I believe if we're truly a New Testament church, that transition will be an easy process. If it isn't, then in my opinion, that shows a failure on our part. And I have to tell you, if you look around at the transitions that are taking place, some of them are very bloody. Some of them are very uncomfortable And in my opinion, that ought not to be. What may be even worse, in my mind, is the fact that many churches are not even thinking about transition. Or should I say, the leaders of many churches are not thinking about uh, transition. And if you bring it up, folks, they may show you the door. People don't want to think about being replaced. As strange as that may sound to us. So here are some of the the New Testament principles that I think really bear upon the issue as we come to it today. One is, the church is led by a plurality of elders, not one CEO. Many large churches, when they change the person in this place, that guy comes and fires all of the staff and brings in his people. And to me, that's a tragedy. That is a tragedy. Churches are to be governed by a plurality of people. And all I'm doing, I'm not even leaving the elders, friends. I'm just trading chairs amongst the elders. That's all it is. And, and so plurality, I think, is a huge factor. Not just plurality in leadership, but plurality in the sense of distributing ministry outward uh, toward and and within the church. And so church ministry is the work of the body through a diversity of gifts, through a diversity of ministries, and those who are teachers have the job of equipping people for ministry, not hindering people's ministry because it may look competitive, equipping people to minister more effectively and to help them go as far in that ministry as they can. Then leadership as servanthood and stewardship. When you think about the, the religious leaders of Israel, they had all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems. But one of their fundamental problems was they thought they owned their leadership position. They thought they owned it. And, and Pilate had it right when he perceived that it was out of jealousy that they rejected Jesus. They did not want anyone taking their place. And so you got this whole sense of of, of possession, of entitlement. This is my place and and nobody's going to have it. It doesn't matter where you serve. It doesn't matter what position or post you have. It is a place of service. And the key question is always, how can one best serve Christ and his church. And that may mean changing places. So what? Leadership is a place of servanthood and stewardship. We do not own it at all. Okay. Uh, Resisting transition is detrimental to the health of the church. I I think that, that, that transition is strongly resisted. In, in, in most circles, and I think it's very unhealthy. And so I give you the illustration. If you remember, it was several years ago I preached on, on David, and I did one sermon called David Takes Early Retirement. That's where he's at home when he shouldn't have been, when he was still out there and he should have been fighting, and he was doing other things. Then you get 1 Kings chapter 1, where David won't retire. And here is a man who is literally almost senile, who is absolutely oblivious to the fact that his kingdom is falling apart, even though he has designated, in in theoretical terms, he has designated Solomon as his replacement. He hasn't let go. He won't let go. And Adonijah steps in in that leadership vacuum and almost, humanly speaking, almost takes over the kingdom because David is reticent to let go. And I think it's because David is not convinced that anybody is capable of leading as well as he is, even senile. And and I got to tell you, that is a huge problem in in, in churches uh, around the world today. Dictatorial leadership is detrimental to discipleship. I think there's a lot of things wrong with discipleship these days. There's a lot of talk about it, and I think much of it is misguided one thing that we see happening very prevalently in discipleship is it's man to man it's one man discipling another and i don't see that nearly as much as i see discipleship taking place in the context of a body of believers with a plurality of gifts believe me this church doesn't need another one of me <laughs> yeah i know you all agree you don't have to say amen i know you believe it or of anybody else it is not duplicating clones. It is duplicating mature Christians who can step forward uh, into, into leadership. The other is uh, that discipleship, in my opinion, is not seen as preparing people to take your place. That's a really scary thought, isn't it? Discipleship is seen as me, the strong brother, helping this weak brother be less weak. But I don't want this guy taking my spot. So discipleship, is as it were, has a kind of a glass top. It has a cap on it. And, and I'm not training people then to take my place. I'm training people to keep their place and leave my place alone. That is a terrible thing. And I have to tell you, one of the biggest problems with discipleship around the world today is you've got autocratic, dictatorial leadership in the church, and the last thing you do is train people how to lead. Because they're your replacement. Now, you can see that in the Old Testament. You remember all the instances where when a a man would come to the, the, the throne, what did he do first? Killed off all the possible competitors to the throne. That was their security. You remember when when Samuel is reticent to go out and look for a replacement for for Saul? It may be that he had an affection for Saul. But Samuel says to God in, in 1 Samuel 16, I think about verse 1, he says, if I go out and look for a replacement for Saul, he'll kill me. Saul doesn't want to be replaced. Why do you think he's pursuing David? He doesn't want to be replaced. What a difference it is. And I was thinking about this with Solomon. When Solomon was instrumental in writing the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs was, in a sense, a training program for future rulers. That was a program that started early. It seems to me that Solomon, at least at that moment in time in his life, said, I need to be preparing my heirs to take my place. What a great thing that is. So I simply say this, empire builders are not kingdom builders, and there are a lot of empire builders in the church. It's a sad, sad reality. The other thing I want to say is that plurality promotes ministry and missions. I'm going to come back to Acts chapter 13, but I want you to mentally keep it in your mind. You remember? Acts chapter 13, the Spirit of God says to the, the leaders uh, that are gathered there in the church, maybe for prayer and fasting, maybe to seek out God's will, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. But if you notice the context in which that is said, it indicates to us there were many gifted men in that church. So the church didn't say, oh my goodness, we're losing our only leaders. They weren't. It was just an overflow of leadership going out. So whether they're going out as 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 missionaries, as Barnabas and, and Paul were, or whether they are going to be those who are our replacements, plurality prepares the stage for future growth and ministry, whereas the empire building uh, really does not. By the way, I'll just give you an illustration of that. Craig isn't here. He'll be here tonight. And I've got to counter him right now. Uh, and by the way, the thing I haven't told him yet is he and I have a, a, a pack. Whichever one of us dies f- first, the other one does his funeral. So we're actually Craig and Grace are on their way home from a funeral that he preached. And he turns to Grace and he says, if I die first, Bob gets an hour. You think he's kidding? He's not. Here's what I've got to say to Craig tonight. Maybe one of you needs to say it. Tonight is not my funeral. (laughs) No hour for you, Craig. But what was interesting is we actually brought Craig on to share in the teaching ministry of CBC. And and it became evident when McKinney needed someone to, to fill that teaching need... It was evident that Craig was the guy we needed to send out to do that. And we were the ones, this is really true, we were the ones who brokered the deal. And I mean, we sat at the table and said, are you going to take care of Craig the way you ought to? We were his managers. It's a great position to be in, to have an abundance of gift. And when you think about the, the men and women who have gone out from our body, and there are many of them, some of them in professional ministry and others Serving in, in other capacities, we've had a hand in that. When we seek to develop the gifts of other people and make them strong as leaders, then we're contributing to the church at large. Okay, here we come to Barnabas, my hero. And the example comes in Acts chapter 11 through Acts chapter 15. This guy is phenomenal, in my opinion, and he manifest the spirit that I think is necessary for transition. When you see him in Acts chapter 11, now now remember, you got this. Acts chapter 8, Stephen's death has resulted in terrible persecution. As a result, virtually all the Christians left except the apostles, right? When you get now to chapter 11, it tells us... Then you've got Acts chapter 10, Peter sees the vision... And, and you know, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. And the end result is Peter needs to go to the house of a Gentile to preach the gospel. That was a precedent-setting event. And so at the end of it, remember, after he goes, the Jerusalem religious leaders call Peter on the carpet. What's this we hear about you taking the gospel to the Gentiles? And, and Peter then goes and tells this story and says, well, What was I to do? The Holy Spirit came and he was, What was I to do? And so they said, Oh, so then, God has chosen to save Gentiles like Jews. ta da Right? Big moment of revelation. And then what does it say next? And so they went out, preaching the gospel to no one but Jews alone. That's what the text says. But somebody didn't get the memo. And they went out and they preached to Gentiles and a church is born in Antioch that is a Gentile church. Who do they send? I suspect that as the guys in that leadership group in Jerusalem looked at themselves, I suspect that most every one of them said, not me. But Barnabas was a man who delighted in the work of God in other people's lives. And so it says that not only did they send him, but when he went and he saw what God was doing, he rejoiced in it, right? And then, after some period of time, he realizes these people need a gift different than me. He does not say, I'm getting older and I think I need to slow down a little bit or I need to take that Hawaiian cruise. No, it's none of that. He knows that somehow Paul's gift is best suited to that group and he would deprive them if he did not go and get Paul. And the words that are used for him seeking Paul are the same strong words that are used for Jesus' parents looking for him when he was lost, quote-unquote, in the caravan. He looked high and low until he found Paul because Paul was the man who could bless that church was his gift. That was the spirit that Barnabas had that we see now played out. So he brings Paul to Antioch, and, and, and Barnabas is still the leader. And so when we get to Acts chapter 13, and we see Barnabas, notice Barnabas' name is, is first, Barnabas and Saul are sent forth. But then you have this whole event at Cyprus where Sergius Paulus is being witnessed to and there's this Jewish uh, magician who is trying to hinder the preaching of the gospel and Paul steps forward and, and puts the whammy on this fellow. And 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 from that point on, it is Paul, not Saul, and his companions. In that moment in time, God reversed the roles, he changed the chairs... And Barnabas never resisted because he had already manifested his spirit when he sought Paul out in the first place. He rejoiced in Paul's success and he supported it, as I believe he was right to do. So Barnabas saw the transition as that which best served the body and best allowed him to fit in where he could support that ministry it was not supported uh, or or carried out because of time or lack of energy or any other thing other than what is best for this group of believers and I find it very interesting that all of this chain of events started by his initiative not some other way all right that's my general thoughts now I'm going to be specific can I By the way, none of the elders knew this was coming. They're all waiting with bated breath, just like the rest of you are like, oh my goodness, what's this guy going to say next? So I call this why I feel good about Tom. Tom doesn't know it either. When I look at the transitions that take place in the Bible, and, and you know there are many of them, the best transitions take place if there's a lengthy period of time of overlap. Think about that with Joshua and Moses, right? Think about that uh, with Elijah and Elisha. And by the way, I have to chuckle at this one. Elijah was not a disciple maker. He was, so to speak, a soloist. He was not a choir boy. He was a soloist. Because remember what he says twice in, in chapter 19? I alone am left. What? You know, we know that there were several thousand others, but he started think of him, thinking of himself as the Lone Ranger. And because he couldn't cut it, nobody could. And you notice, God would not accept his resignation until he had trained his replacement. Isn't that right? So what you see is the the, the the command is given in chapter 19. It's not until 2 Kings that we see Elijah going up to heaven because he hadn't finished the training program. Until Elijah became a disciple maker and started thinking of transition beyond himself, he couldn't leave. <laughs> I love that one, I have to admit. Barnabas and Paul overlap, is there not? Overlap of time ministry together. Do you get the point with Tom? I mean, if a guy is with us for over 25 years, don't you think we probably know him well enough to say, by George, this is the guy? Length of time. Biblical transitions emphasize Continuing commitment to the Word of God. I found this interesting. In, in, uh, Hebrews 11, it talks about the three patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And their faith was evidenced in every instance by how they believed in God to work in the future beyond their death. <laughs> In other words, God's cause didn't stop with them. Their faith said God's cause goes, goes on beyond them. And so their statements of faith and their prophecies were related to the future through their offspring. Not somehow that the future ended with them and their death. So you look at Deuteronomy chapter 31 and you see this constant emphasis. Don't forget the word of God. You see it in Acts chapter 20, do you not? Where Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders, and what does he do? He commits them to God's word. So the the important thing for us is that we, we come and we go. That's the reality. We come, we go. God stays. God's program is faithful and sure and therefore when we go we ought to say to people trust his word trust in God as we sang in our song trust and obey I don't know anyone in this church who has a stronger commitment to calling you to God's word than Tom I do not know of anybody who feels any more strongly about that than Tom does and I have to say to you, that's the right note for me. When you look at Barnabas and Paul, they simply traded positions. That's what's happening here. I'm not going anywhere, but I'm just trading chairs. It's 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 a different role. But the important thing is, when you trade chairs, you still got to be on the same team. And I believe Tom's a team player. That's why I feel good about Tom moving ahead in his ministry. Here's a big one. Here's a big one. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but I've thought about it, and I think it's true for me and for this church and for Tom. God changes leadership to better address culture. Now think about this. When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus working with his disciples, right? When you get to the book of Acts, chapter 15, those Jerusalem religious leaders, the guys we refer so much, are foot-dragging. Now, am I, am I overstating the case, or is there not some foot-dragging? Acts, chapter 11, they call Peter on the carpet and say, wait a minute, you went and preached to a Gentile. That's foot-dragging, folks. Foot-dragging with respect To Gentiles, Acts chapter fifteen. Well, if the Gentiles are going to come to faith, then they need to get circumcised. They need to keep the law of Moses. So the Jerusalem Council deals with that. But my point is this: it took a man like Barnabas to go to that church at Antioch, a man with a heart like Barnabas, and it took a man like Paul to become the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes. Peter needed to set a precedent in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, but Peter was never an apostle to the Gentiles. There is something about that whole preparation scene that God had prepared Paul to be an apostle to Gentiles and he had not prepared the other disciples in that same way. And I believe we're dealing with a new culture. And I believe, quite honestly, I'm not the one that is as suited to deal with that as Tom. So I believe that's a very, very important piece of the uh, equation. So some exhortations to you. One, expect and pray for better times. Now, here's where the founding father syndrome, I'm one of those guys, the founding father syndrome comes in, and you know what it says? Nobody can do it as well as we did. That's the founding father syndrome. And so, when you move from one generation of leadership to the next, what are the founding fathers tempted to say? Oh no, woe is us. It's all going downhill, right? That's not what the scriptures teach. Look at Moses to Joshua. I mean, good grief. Moses spends 40 years wandering around the desert with these goofy people. What do you see in Joshua? They possess the land. I call Joshua a success, not some downgrade from Moses. Elijah to Elisha. There again, if you think about Elijah's ministry, it's not nearly as productive as Elisha's, is it? And remember, God promised Elisha a twofold portion of his spirit. Things moved upward, not downward. Downward. From Elijah to Elisha. And by the way, in all of that, I'm not saying I'm Elijah. I'm not saying Tom is Elisha. I'm just saying transitions can bring change for the better. Not necessarily change for the worse, as pessimists would want to believe. David to Solomon. Think about that again. It wasn't David who built the the temple. It was uh, Solomon. Many, many good things came about because of that transition. Now, here's one you're going to giggle about, or if you don't, you should. Expect a different leadership style. Folks, leadership happens in different ways. One of the saddest things for me is to see especially young women as they're looking at potential husbands and they see aggressive, assertive, domineering young men as great potential That scares me. That scares me. That's not the kind of leadership style I see in Scripture. And so when you look at these two guys, Ezra, remember when he finds out about the sin? He pulls out his hair and he tears his garment in in Ezra chapter 9. Nehemiah is in the same situation, folks. He pulls out their hair and he curses them. Now, I, I'm not, I'm not making any statements about Tom and me, although Tom's got more hair to pull out than I do at this point. <laughs> but expect a different leadership style. That's just the way it works, and we ought to look forward to that. Next, don't let personal loyalties lead to disunity. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's fine to have love and appreciation for those who serve. Don't let those loyalties lead to division. And I know you all agree with that. Notice this, playing out that same theme. Expect and appreciate a different phase of ministry. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is saying, in a sense, we all have a role to play. One of them lays the foundation, others build on the foundation. One sows the seed, another waters the seed, another harvests it. Different phases. And so expect, in a sense, if this is like a a missile being launched, Tom is the second stage of the launch. Expect that there are differences. And expect that God is doing that because he is building upon the things that all of... The leaders have been doing all these years <laughs> here's one this is more for me than for you but i love this text by the way it's 1 corinthians 16 12 if you were looking in your bible saying where in the world is that i love this text look what he says but concerning apollos our brother i encouraged him greatly would you not say that was i leaned on him i, I would say that's an apostolic lean I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now. But he will come when he has the opportunity. What Paul is saying is, I tried to tell him what to do and he said no. So I guess I'll just let him do what God leads him to do. So this is my commitment to Tom. I'm not telling you what to do. It's not the way it works. God will lead and he doesn 't need us meddling in the process, so the final words are those that we see repeated over and over in scripture: Be strong and very courageous. Those are words that would be spoken to Tom, uh, if you put them in in, in uh, joshua's in joshua 's shoes or or others, but there are also words that are spoken to the congregation, and they are also words spoken by the congregation when you look at that uh, in Ezra chapter 10 they say to Ezra you be strong and courageous and we'll follow you it is very important it is vitally important that we all are strong and courageous as to what God is going to do and that we encourage one another and our leaders to trust God and obey is that not true? Now, it's just possible that somebody might be here this morning who hasn't yet come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I I need to say this. It's really all about Jesus. We've talked too much, as it were. And I have to make a confession. Joe was asking me about today. And I said, you know, I'm not worried about this morning. It's tonight that scares me to death. (laughs) If I could get through that, I'll, I'll be a happy man. It's about Jesus, folks. It is about Him. And you know that. It's about Him. He's the one that we celebrate every week. He's the one who took the sinner's place. He's the one who made atonement for sins once for all. He's the one who is faithful and unchanging. And no matter who it is who stands behind this pulpit, if we're not pointing to Him, we're pointing to the wrong person. That's the way it is. Hey, I love you guys. I love these years of serving you and serving with you, and it's not over yet. But I would like to pray because you want to go. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace in, in, in the way in which you have moved throughout these years of our history as a church. Thank you for all of those people who have been a part of, of what you are doing here. Thank you for my fellow elders and for all of the encouragement and support that they have been and for the ministries that they have done. And I pray now for Tom and ask that your hand might be upon him, that you might bless his ministry, and that you might extend and expand the outreach of this church through him and through the elders and through every one of us as we seek to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.